Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. I have been looking forward to this study for a while now, Revelation chapter 1. We are not even going to be able to dive into this book. We have to do another one of our introductions to a series of why we are studying this book at all. And I want to give you kind of a uh, a pastoral perspective on that, and then a, a theological understanding of this book. So we're going to do a little bit in two parts. But when people in our congregation were asking, when you were asking, what are we going to do after we study the book of Judges? We spent a, a year in the book of Judges. What are we going to do after that? And I said, I, th- I think we're going to have to do Ruth, because we can't just leave our church in just the, the slough of despond in Judges. We've got to get out of there and see the redemption that's in Ruth. And so we covered Ruth, and inevitably people were asking, well, I know Ruth is a short book, so what's it going to be after Ruth? This is the life of a pastor. What are you doing next? What are you doing next? What are you doing next? And I have been wanting to do uh, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So I thought, well, I want to do just these, these two short chapters. So that was in my mind, in my heart, but I would ask, when people would ask me, what are you doing? I would ask, what is it that you would want to study? I have ideas, I have options, I want to go through Jonah one day, I want to do Hosea one day. We'd been in the Old Testament for over a year, and so I was just getting feedback. What is it that you would like to study? And nine times out of ten, the answer was, I would love to study the book of Revelation. So if if you don't like this study, it's your fault, right? Because you all picked this. The second reason why I wanted to do this study through Ruth was, or through Revelation was not only after Ruth, knowing that we were going to have to go somewhere else and figure out something, and, and you all were saying, hey, I think Revelation would be fun to do. As I said, I wanted to do Revelation 2 and 3, just those two chapters. They're epistles. They're just letters to churches, and we are a church, and they're letters to churches. So I thought, well, let's do chapter 2 and 3. But I thought, in order to understand chapter 2 and 3, we need the context of chapter 1. So let's do 1, 2, and 3. And then I thought, well, 4 and 5 are glorious chapters. And they're not hard chapters. When you think about revelation, you think about difficulty, they're not hard at all. They're just visions of heaven and what's going on in heaven. So I thought, well, we could do 1 through 5 pretty easily. 6 through 22 is when it gets a little bit more challenging. And really, 21 and 22 aren't challenging at all. So I thought, well, we could, we could cover that middle section. We could go quickly through the middle section. So I just started thinking through, we, we could do this. We could do the whole book. So um, originally went from just chapter 2 and 3 to let's just study the whole book. Let's get the whole book. We're going to have to get through chapter 1 through 5 anyway. So let's just finish out the whole book and see God's plan of ultimate redemption and restoration throughout the entirety of this book. The last reason I think is the most important reason why I wanted to study this book Number one, you all said, hey, let's study the book of Revelation. Number two, uh, I wanted to study just those first, uh, the, the chapter two and chapter three, the letters to the churches, and then I thought, well, let's expand it and we'll do a whole study through the book. But the third reason was as we went through the book of Judges, one of the beautiful things that happened in our study through the book of Judges is we as a church, I had so many conversations with so many of you that was so encouraging we as a church went to a book in the Old Testament that many people don't even read. And if they do read, they go through very quickly because they just want to skip over it because it's weird, it's hard, it's challenging, it's gross. And we took a whole year to study that book in the Old Testament. And there were two things that we found. 
two huge, important things that we found. This challenging, difficult, hard, harsh, strange book, number one, can be understood, right? We walked through it and we went, oh, this makes sense. We could, we could understand it. And number two, we saw its relevance for us today. Even though it's hard, even though it's strange, even though it's weird, we saw it can be understood and it's completely relevant for us today. So as I was thinking about what should we study next, I tried to figure out what's the New Testament counterpart to that issue. We studied a book in the Old Testament that's weird, that's hard, that's challenging, and we found out it can be understood and it's completely relevant for us today. And I thought the New Testament counterpart's obviously Revelation. It's weird, it's hard, it's challenging. Even theological giants like John Calvin, he said, I'm not writing a commentary on Revelation. This guy can write a commentary on anything. And he says, I'm not writing a commentary on Revelation because I don't understand it. And he didn't want to get anything wrong, and so he just said, I'm not even going to write a commentary on it. This is a strange book. This is a weird book. And so often with strange, weird books, we just tend to say, I don't want to get into it because I don't want to get it wrong. Maybe I'll I'll misunderstand something or maybe we just think it's not relevant for us today. So I thought, well, what's the New Testament counterpart to Judges? Revelation is perfect. And I hope that we will walk through this book in the exact same way we did with Judges, where when we get to the end of it, or even every Sunday, we're going to see, oh, it's so much more easy to understand than we first thought. You can totally understand it. And it's completely relevant for us today. It's not just about knowing prophecy for the future. It's relevant for us today. So that's why I wanted to go through the book of Revelation. So let's just start with reading chapter 1, verses 1 through three. We're not going to do what we did with Judges or with Ruth, where we read through the whole of Ruth in one uh, setting. Uh, that would take a while to read through all of Revelation. It's a beautiful thing, and I would personally just encourage you to do that. At one point during this sermon series, just sit down and read through chapter one all the way through the end of chapter 22. Read through it in one sitting. You'll get a tone difference than maybe you've ever heard or understood from this book. Uh, Don't try and answer questions that you don't know about. Just read it from start to finish in one uh, sitting because that's exactly how it was meant to be read. You'll see that even in chapter one, verses one through three. So let's read these together. We'll pray. We'll ask God's blessing on our time, and then we'll study some theological reasons why we are going to study this book together. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angels to his slave John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed or obey the things which are written in it, because the time is near. Father, these words fill us with encouragement, We are slaves of Christ, just like John was, just like the recipients of this letter. We have been bought with the price. We are not our own. We have been called to glorify you in our bodies. We are a church, just like the churches in Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Thyatira, in Pergamum. We are a church. 
And so we are encouraged to read a letter that was given to be read aloud in churches. We have questions even as we read this. The time is near, but it's been thousands of years since John wrote that. What does near mean? What does soon take place? Are you coming soon? We have questions that we long to answer, but but more than anything, we've already been given marching orders just even in these first three verses. These verses, this book has been given for us to read, to hear, to understand, and to obey. There are things in this book to obey. It's not just all about what's going to happen later. It's about based on what's happening later, how do we live now? And we can obey you as we read prophecies of what's to come. So, Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts today, even with a, an overview and an introduction to why we are going to study this book at all. God, I pray that we would have an encouragement in our souls that would keep us coming back for more, drinking from the fountain of living waters we heard this morning from our brother Marty. That we would see Christ lifted up, exalted, and that the revelation of Jesus would do for us exactly what it did for John. Just put us flat on our face and worship before you so that we can hear you say, rise, and you would speak to us through your word. God, we love you, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, since we're going to study this book, and this book inside of it has a lot of numbers, and numbers that have a lot of significance, and one of the most significant numbers in this book is seven, I thought seven would be what I would take this morning, uh, seven reasons why we are going to study this book, seven reasons why we are going to study the book of Revelation. We'll go through these quickly at the beginning, and then we'll slow down towards the end. Number one, first reason why we're studying this book, Revelation is for our benefit. Reason number one, Revelation is for our benefit. It's for us. It's written for us. It's not written to us. Certain parts are, but it's not written to us. It's written for us, but it's written for our benefit. Even in that first, uh, first section in verse three, we have a blessing pronounced for those who would read this and do what it tells us to do. So this book has inherent in it blessings. If you want to be blessed, study and read this book. All the way in the end, in chapter 22, there's another blessing that's proclaimed for those who would read this book and do what it says. So it's written for us. That should fill us with an expectancy over what is God going to tell us each and every Sunday morning and how are we going to live that out and be blessed by what God tells us. It's written for our benefit. Number two, not only is Revelation written for our benefit, which is why we're studying it, but number two, we can understand revelation. We can understand revelation. We can understand it. We can hold on to it. We can cling to it. It is apocalyptic literature. Apocalypsis is the Greek word, which just is the second word in my English Bible. The revelation, the apocalypsis. It just means revealing, unveiling something that's covered, that's hidden, and you pull the lid off of it and you show everybody what it is. The opposite of apocalypse is a word that you know, apocryphon, apocryphal. Apocryphal means mysterious, hidden, something that you can't fully understand and you need somebody else to help you to understand it. The book of Revelation is not apocryphal, it's apocalypse. It's meant to be understood, so we can understand it. It can be known, though it's unfamiliar to us, 
Though at certain places it can be very challenging to us, ultimately it's not impossible to understand what's happening in this book. Understanding the book of Revelation is completely within our grasp. We can understand it. Just like with Judges, where we went through a book and we, what does this mean? What is this for? How is this relevant? We're going to do the exact same thing with Revelation. We can understand it. Yes, it's challenging. There's places that are very challenging. There's places that also are not challenging at all. We're going to study this with our brother Marty and how to study the Bible, but you have to study the Bible within its genres, right? We talked today about poetry, about figures of speech. We take them literally, yes, but literally in their genre. We don't just say if something is poetic language, we don't say that that obviously means exactly what it says. If I say I've had a broken heart before, I'm obviously not asking you to take that literally, meaning I've had my heart broken on the inside and had to be stitched up and have heart surgery. It's a poetic figure of speech. I have, I've had a broken heart before. I've been sad on the inside so much that it feels like my heart's broken. Now, the same thing is true in every aspect of the Bible, every book of the Bible. It's language that's meant, meant to be taken at face value in its genre. And one of the reasons why Revelation is so challenging is it keeps on mixing up genres. Chapter 2 and 3 is epistle. It's the genre of epistle. It's just letters. It's like reading 1 Thessalonians or uh, reading Colossians, it's a letter. There's not much that needs to be interpreted. You can totally understand it. It's a letter. However, since the entirety of this book is an epistle as far as it's a letter, it's a letter that was written to the churches, we have to know that every letter has an occasion for its writing. Right? We, we would say, hey, I'm writing a letter to Sam. It's his birthday. Happy birthday, Sam. The occasion of the writing is his birthday. Or I'm writing uh, to somebody who had something that they went through that was really challenging. I'm sorry, I'm praying for you. There's an occasion for it. Every letter is occasional. It has an occasion to it. There's an occasion for this letter. There's a reason why this letter was written. And I don't think that the reason why it was written is too far away from the reason why we need to study it today. We'll get into that in, I think it's number three or number four. But here's the guiding principle. Since this book is a letter, since it has some uh, epistle parts in it, we need to know what it meant to the original recipients. What did it mean to them? And take that meaning and understand what that meaning means for us. The reality is, if the original recipients of Revelation wouldn't understand our application of it, our interpretation of it, if we took the meaning and said, well, this is the meaning, and they would have no idea what we're talking about, then we can probably guess we're wrong in the interpretation of the book. We need to understand what did it mean to them, the original recipients. This means that any interpretation of the book of Revelation that necessitates a 21st century perspective is almost assuredly wrong. It can never mean, and this is something, again, our brother Marty's going to get into, but the Bible can never mean to us what it never meant to them. It cannot mean to us what it never meant to them. Now, we might apply it a little bit differently, but the meaning, the authorial intent of the book of Revelation of the Bible, it can't just mean different things to different people. There's one meaning with many different applications. The book of Revelation is also obviously prophetic, prophetic literature. And prophecy, by the way, is just, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes it's God saying, hey, here's what's going to happen in the future. But that is far, more often in the Bible, it's not, here's what's happening in the future. More often in the Bible, when you see prophecy, it's just, hey, this is what's happening now, and I'm talking to you. Israel, 
Here's a prophecy through Isaiah. Hey, repent because I know what you're doing, and if you don't repent, bad things are going to happen. That's not, hey, here's uh, the, the future. I'm not telling you the future. Now, Revelation obviously has aspects in it that tell the future. But there are also aspects of prophecy in Revelation that aren't telling the future. They're just saying, here's what God says in the here and now. It's also poetic. There's a lot of poetry in the book of Revelation. One of the reasons why I love the book of Revelation, there's a lot of singing in Revelation. There's more poetry and singing in the book of Revelation than any other book in the Bible except for the book of Psalms. It's just filled with singing. But that has an inherent difficulty inside of it because we need to take it poetically. We can't just take it uh, literally. There's figures of speech. And then finally, it's apocalyptic literature. In the whole of the book, it's apocalyptic literature. This is, the book of Revelation is literally apocalypse now. It's here. This is the apocalypse. It's the unveiling. We think of apocalypse as the end time war of Armageddon. It's not. Apocalypse just means the unveiling. But apocalyptic literature has very significant challenges and differences inside of it. One of them I already mentioned. There are significance to numbers. Numbers have meaning inside of them in apocalyptic literature. We're going to see a couple of them in the coming weeks. And so when we get to the numbers, we have to ask ourselves, what do these numbers mean? It's almost like we need a code to interpret and understand apocalyptic literature. And here's the beauty of the book of Revelation. There is a code that interprets all of Revelation. It's not some strange Bible code. It's not some newspaper headline. The Old Testament is the lens with which we will understand the book of Revelation. The Old Testament is the key. It's the code. I would submit to you, your lack, my lack of understanding the book of Revelation is equal to my lack of understanding the Old Testament. Wherever I have questions about Revelation, it's because I'm not understanding something in the Old Testament. I don't think many of the recipients of this letter in the original churches would have had many questions because they knew there's Old Testament allusions and quotations all throughout this book. So, for instance, I'll just take one. When we see, as our brother was talking about this morning, when we see locusts in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, with human faces, with lion's teeth, with tails like scorpions, we aren't to take that as one beloved man took it, Hal Lindsey. I don't know if you guys know who Hal Lindsey is, but we're not to take it to mean the cobra helicopters and the judgment that's going to come through them and their firepower. The recipients of this book would have no idea. What's a cobra helicopter? If we go back to what the word locust meant in an, uh, uh, an illustrative sense, go back to the book of Joel. A locust is just a representation of an army that's invading. And so if this locust has these specific aspects of human faces, that means it has intelligence. These armies are not just plowing ahead, killing things. They have intelligence in their combat. Scorpions' tails, they have a massive, uh, immense power to inflict pain. There's, I don't think the, the readers would have thought, I have no idea what this locust represents. The Old Testament is the code to give us understanding as to what the book of Revelation means. I think if we were to study the book of Revelation most appropriately, we would study every single book, verse, chapter of the Old Testament first, and then we wouldn't need much explanation in Revelation. It would all make sense to us. 
since we don't really have time to study every single book in the Old Testament, I'll be taking us back every once in a while. But the Old Testament is the key. It's the code. If you know the Old Testament, this will just open up and unfold before us. So we're not going to do newspaper exegesis. We're not going to interpret this through the headlines of today. No headline hermeneutics. No going to the Bible and saying, well, what's happening? I'm, I'm not into that. I'm into what would the original recipients have understood based off of the Old Testament allusions that they're going to. But all that to say, we can understand it. And it's going to be fun to do that. And I hope we have many moments like we did with the book of Judges where we go, oh, this is, we, we totally get what this is saying. And it's completely relevant for us today. Number three, not only is Re- Revelation for our benefit, not only can we understand it, but Revelation, number three, reminds us that there is no middle ground. Revelation reminds us that there is no middle ground. Sometimes it's gently said. Sometimes it's very harshly stated. But there's no gray area. There's no fuzziness, no ambiguity. There's only light and darkness, only life and death. The book of Revelation shows us that there are only two potential eternal destinies, and there's no middle ground between those two eternal destinies. And that every single person will find their way to one of two eternal destinies, and that's it. And in a place and time in our culture where pluralism reigns, we need Revelation. We live in a day and age where the only thing that is socially unacceptable is if you say that something is socially unacceptable. Otherwise, anything's fair game. We live in a day where the only heresy is to say that something is heretical. And so we need a book that just boils it down very clearly and crystallizes our understanding that heaven and hell exist and they're real. Worship of God or worship of the devil. Those are the only two options. You either worship yourself or you worship God. We need this. I think the book of Revelation will show us something. Most people have a misunderstanding. We talked about this a little bit in our small groups over the summer. Why would a loving God send anybody to hell? Um, just, I, I was reading a book last night. Somebody asked that question of the author. The, the person who was asking was an atheist and said, do you think I'm going to hell? The author is a Christian. And the author answered so perfect. I love what the author said. So atheist said, do you think I'm going to hell? And the author said, don't you want to? Hell is voluntary. Nobody's forcing you to go there. But if you hate God, you would hate heaven. You would hate heaven because heaven is just hanging out with God for all of eternity. If you love God, you want to be with him for all of eternity. God's not going to send somebody to hell who loves him and wants to be with him. God allows all of us to make our own decisions. Do you love God or not? If you don't love him, then it's a, it's a very loving thing for God to say, I'm not going to force you to be with me forever. People in hell currently would love to leave hell. They don't want to be there. But if you said, you know what, you can get out of hell and just go to heaven. Do you want to go to heaven? You know what their answer is? 100% of the people in hell 
would say, no, I'd rather stay in hell than go to heaven. I'd much rather stay in hell than go to heaven. They don't love God. And so this book is going to confront us with the realities eternity is closer than we think. Brothers and sisters, we, before you know, we did this in our study last year in the book of James. Before you know it, our life's a vapor, it's gone, and we're going to be in eternity. So one question is, have you today come to an understanding of your love for God? Do you love him? Not just know things about him. The demons know the truth about him, but they don't love him. Do you love God? Because if you don't love God, then you would hate heaven and God would not allow you there. And so one of the things that this book will confront us with is our own decisions. Have we chosen to follow God? Not out of an intellectualism, not out of some sense of duty, but because we love him. You won't love him until you understand what he has done on your behalf in order for you to be able to love him. You and I all deserve hell. We deserve judgment. We deserve justice for our sins. We deserve punishment. And God loves us so much that he says, I'm going to take your punishment on the cross. I'm going to live a sinless, perfect life. I'm going to take your punishment on the cross so that you don't have to be punished because I love you. And those who understand what Jesus did at the cross and that he rose from the dead, offering us eternal life, those who see that and savor that will look at Jesus and say, I love you for what you've done. We love him because he first loved us, First John tells us. So we're going to love him for what he's done. And if you love him, then heaven is yours and you are going to love being there. If you don't love God, I'm not that bad of a person. I don't, I don't really need Jesus' sacrifice. Thank you so much, but you didn't need to die for me. I'll try and work hard. I'll be a better person. I'm better than so-and-so. We all play the moral relativity game. There's always somebody worse that we can compare ourselves to and say, I'm better than they are. We'll look at Jesus' sacrifice and we'll say, it's nice, but it's not for me. I don't need it. And if you say that, then you're going to walk away saying, so I don't really love God. I don't love Jesus. And if you don't love Jesus, you would hate heaven. This book will confront us, number one, with that reality. Have you made a decision out of love for Christ to follow him. But secondly, it will help us, if you have made that decision, to look outward. You will start seeing people, not just as people physically, as flesh, but as souls walking around, destined for heaven or hell. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need to do. If you are a Christian here this morning, and your destiny is secure, and you are going to heaven, then you have one job on earth that God has left you for. One job, Matthew 28. Go into all the world and proclaim and preach the gospel. Baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And you do that by living it out. So obviously we have multiple jobs of following Christ ourselves and encouraging other believers to do that. But one of the things that we'll never be able to do in heaven is share Christ in a saving way with a non-believer. We can never do that in heaven. So we need to do that now. We need to give our lives to that now. It's a, just a hymn writer says, uh, rise up, O men of God, and women of God as well. Have done with lesser things. This book's going to help us. It's so black and white, there's no middle ground. Number four. Number four, Revelation gives encouragement and exhortation for a church under attack. Revelation gives encouragement and exhortation 
for a church that's under attack. This letter was written to a church that was under attack. And again, we can't understand what it means for us and to us until we understand what it meant to them. This church, the, the churches that are involved in these uh, opening chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, there are seven churches that are under heavy attack. And there's three main ways they are attacked. Number one, physical persecution. Number two, religious compromise. And number three, materialistic seduction. There's physical per- persecution happening. There's physical persecution. People are being killed because of their love for Jesus. There's religious compromise. People are deciding, well, I I think I can take other religions and synchronize them with the gospel and have this kind of amalgamation of different religions. You can't do that. And then there's materialistic seduction. The world started calling people back then as it does today. Do you love the world? Will you follow the world or will you follow Christ? Those same three attacks that the church was under back then in Revelation are the exact same attacks that we see today. Not so much in our day and age with the physical persecution in our modern day America, although I think we would be very foolish and unwise to think that that isn't happening soon in America. I think that physical persecution is coming quickly to America, so we need to be ready, and this will help us get ready. But religious compromise, we see that constantly in America. Religious compromise is all over the place. Materialistic seduction is all over the place. Do you love the world or do you love Jesus? You cannot love two masters. We see that constantly. So this book will encourage us and exhort us as it did for the church in Revelation. Number five, Revelation provides a perspective that is cosmic and transcendent. Revelation provides a perspective that is cosmic and transcendent. One of the reasons why we are studying this book is it's filled with gravitas. It's filled with a gravity. So much so, much so in this book, so much gravity is there that there are places in this book where literally heaven just stands in silence. They don't even know what to do. These are angels that have seen God create the world, and when God does certain things that he does in the book of Revelation, they can't even speak. Their breath is taken away. They are filled with a gravity about who God is. And we need that. We need need more gravity. I think that a, a word that would define the American church is trivial. Not gravitas. We need to be serious, filled with gravity. Heaven and hell are real. Eternity is real. We had the blessing, my wife and I did, of celebrating our 10-year anniversary in Hawaii this summer. Our brother Sergio preached for uh, me while I was gone, and, and we just got to enjoy sitting at the beach and seeing the grandeur, and the, just, it's peaceful, just pure peace. We were on Maui, and there's this, there's this huge mountain that I believe is made out of a volcano, and you can go to the top of it. It's called Haleakala. You can go to the top of it. It's over 10,000 feet tall. And when we went up there, my wife made an observation about me as a human being, because we went up, I said, well, I want to go to the top. Let's go all the way. And then we went to, you can drive, you can park up at the top, and then there's a hike to get even higher to the top. You're just not at the top. You're at the tippy top. So I, I drove all the way to the top, and then I hiked all the way to the tip. I wanted to find the highest place on this island. 
And I just stood there in complete silence. And my wife's like, yeah, this is beautiful. All right, let's take pictures and go home. And I just, I wanted to stand there. And she made this observation on our way home uh, as we were driving back. She said, you like mountains more than you like beaches, don't you? You like mountains more than you like beaches. And I said, they're completely different things to me. Uh, a beach, you just relax. I fell asleep so many times. Praise the Lord for sunscreen, because I just <laughs> fell asleep. I just would, would lay down in the sand, and I'm, I'm a goner. And it was so, such a blessing, because uh, Hannah would go out and go scuba dive or go snorkeling in the, in the water. And I would, I would lay down, and there were people around us. We had all this food and all these different things. And I would say, hey, can you just watch this? Because I might, I might be gone pretty soon here. I'm so tired. Can you just watch these things for us? And some of them would just laugh. One, one couple said, where are you from? Are you from L.A.? And I said, yeah, I'm from L.A. Why? And she said, the beach is here. Nobody's stealing any of your stuff. Just you can go to sleep. I'll watch it, but nobody's going to steal any of your things. I would just go to sleep. It was so peaceful and relaxing. When we got to the top of the mountain, I didn't go to sleep. I just stared in awe and wonder. And I told my wife, There's, beaches and mountains are completely different. Not that I don't like beaches. But there's, there's something that happens to me when I'm on a mountain. Just like our brother Marty was talking about this morning. When you look at Half Dome, I just, my, my soul feels uneasy. I don't know if you've had that feeling where you just kind of feel uneasy to the depth of who you are. I told my wife, I love that feeling. I love feeling small. I love just feeling small. And this book will make us feel very small because God is very, very large, cosmically so, transcendently so. The word throne appears 34 times in this book. There is a throne fixed in heaven, and God is on it. And every problem that we have in this world is so small compared to his glory. And things aren't always what they seem to be. This book will help us to look past the obvious, to look past even the present moments and circumstances and get beyond it all to see from God's cosmic perspective. There's so much more going on that meets the eye. And I, I, I pray that as we study this, as I said earlier, all uh, our eyes would turn to Jesus, fix on him, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. I want that to happen. doesn't mean that pain doesn't exist, that suffering isn't real but that in those moments of trials, of difficulty, that we would realize, compared to eternity, as Paul says, these are light, and they're momentary, and they're producing something that we see what they're producing in the book of Revelation. And the reality is, he's going to win. Uh, like Martin Luther wrote in, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He must win the battle. The, the devil, lo, his doom is sure. It's coming to an end. There's a day when evil will no longer exist. And this book will help us remind ourselves that because that is sure in the future, we can live differently today because of that day. So, number six, moving on. The Revelation encourages us to reflect on our own worship of God. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation encourages us to reflect on our own worship of God. In this book, when the veil is pulled back, when we finally see the outcome of everything that God is doing, the response of heaven, of the people that are on the earth that see what's happening, it's worship through song. This book is filled with incessant, passionate 
worship through song. As I said earlier, there's more singing in the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible except for the Psalms. There's more singing in this book than anywhere else except for Psalms. And the songs that are in heaven, they are so beautiful. I have many people that are friends of mine that are worship leaders, worship through song. They lead on guitar or through piano. And, and they've, they've told me, man, I'm, I'm kind of done with wordy songs, songs that are just filled with words. I want fewer words, sung more times, very expressive, very emotive. I just don't like wordy songs. In my heart, I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if you'd like our church. <laughs> we sing very wordy songs. But the reality is, I believe that that's a description of the songs of the people of God in the Bible. The songs in heaven are very wordy songs. They are filled with words. Just, they cannot contain their enthusiasm about God and just spills out in words. And there are three main themes that emerge in all of their words and all of the songs in this book. Number one, God is creator. He's creator. He's made everything that we see. Number two, God is savior. He has redeemed his people. And number three, God is judge. And those three themes just keep emerging over and over and over again. And the beauty is that in heaven, there is no one who is indifferent in these scenes. As they're singing in heaven, no one is indifferent. And the reason why is because the indifferent people aren't in heaven. They don't go to heaven. They wouldn't like heaven if they went to heaven because they're indifferent about the things of God. So Revelation will help us set aside the trivial things to no longer be indifferent people. As we talked about when we studied Psalm 100 a few months ago or about a year ago now, Revelation will help us have uh, not an emotional empty-headedness in our singing. We don't want to just be emotional but empty in our, in our thinking. Just emotional empty-headedness. We don't want that. But we also don't want intellectual empty-heartedness. We don't want emotional, empty-headedness where we're just emotion without an understanding, but we don't want understanding without emotion. And we're going to see both of those things. Uh, they don't exist in heaven. There are, there are no people or angels in heaven that are emotionally empty-headed or intellectually empty-hearted. They are fully engaged in passion and in doctrine and in doxology. And that leads us to our final reason why we're studying the book of Revelation. So number one, it's for our benefit. Number two, we can understand it. Number three, it will remind us that there's no middle ground. Number four, it gives encouragement and exhortation for a church that's under attack. Number five, it provides a perspective that is cosmic and transcendent. Number six, it encourages us to reflect on our own worship of God. And finally, number seven, and this is one of the reasons why I could not wait to say this book after our brother Marty went through what he went through in how to study the Bible in a grand narrative form. Number seven, Revelation reveals the glorious culmination of God's redemptive story. Revelation reveals the glorious culmination of God's redemptive story. Revelation is the conclusion of the Bible as a whole. And as we study with our brother Marty, we have creation in the beginning. We have fall in chapter three in Genesis. We have redemption throughout the whole of the Bible. And then we have a restoration, a new heaven, a new earth, and a recreation. The first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis one and two, and the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, portray a perfect universe perfect universe. Book ends. Satan enters the story of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, third chapter into the Bible. 
Satan exits the Bible in the third chapter from the end of the Bible. So first two chapters, perfect universe, Satan jumps onto the scene in chapter 3. Third from the end of the Bible, the entirety of the Bible, Satan leaves, and then we have two chapters of a perfect universe. You cannot miss the Genesis imagery, and we'll get to it in, in Revelation 21 and 22. You can't miss the imagery of the garden in these last two chapters. A new garden, no curse. God is dwelling with his people, and the tree of life is there again. It's back on the scene. John is thinking of Eden when he's writing. He's tying up the whole story because that is the purpose of God in his plan of redemption for his people. Hell will house all evil and will be thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity and there will be a place where evil no longer exists. When God placed Adam in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, he told Adam, take care of it, guard it, work the ground, be careful, uh, name the animals, but you protect this place. And the goal was, if hypothetically Adam and Eve had not sinned, was you uh, be fruitful and multiply, go into the entirety of the earth and spread the goodness of God throughout everywhere in every corner of the earth. But it starts with protecting this garden and living in righteousness. And Adam failed miserably. That's why he's kicked out and the cherubim say, well, we'll take over the protecting, right? Flaming sword, spinning around, you leave, we'll protect the holiness of God. And where Adam failed, Jesus Christ shows up on the scene and he succeeds perfectly. Where Adam failed in living righteously, Jesus never fails in his righteousness. Where Adam fails in loving the Father, Jesus never fails in perfectly loving the Father. So much so that he says, the Father's will is my food. I am energized by doing what God tells me to do. Where Adam failed in running away from the Father in his sin, Jesus succeeded in running to the Father and saying, your will be done, not mine. And where Adam failed in dying, Jesus never failed by rising from the dead and offering eternity. We studied this morning, he is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, will never die. Where Adam failed, Jesus never failed. Adam lost paradise. Jesus regains it through the cross, brings his kingdom, inaugurates it at the cross and the resurrection and will consummate it in the end in chapter 21 and 22. And Eden, on its best day, could only scratch the surface of the beauty and the blessing of the new heavens and the new earth. But brothers and sisters, we have reason to read the end of the story. We're in the middle of it, but we know the ending. We know who wins. We know how it's all going to go down. And we know that we have a king who has conquered death, and he holds the keys of death and of Hades in his hand. And he says, anybody who would come to me, I will give them life. Father, we thank you so much for the words that are found in this book that we are just scratching the surface this morning with expectancy, knowing that you are going to do amazing things in and through us as we study this book. 
So God, prepare our hearts even now for one of these areas, these seven aspects of why we are studying this as a church. Maybe there's one that stands out to us that, that we need to work on. Maybe there's one that, that we would think we need to grow in, but there's actually something else that you have to teach us. God, search us and know us. Enable us as we study this book to be studied by this book so that we would be changed, that our affections for Christ would grow, that we would love him more than anything in this world, and that he would be our greatest treasure and our joy, both now and forevermore. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.